Aging Matters is brought to you in part by Kathy Corridan, Senior Real Estate Specialist. Kathy is a realtor with KW Metro Center in Alexandria and works with seniors in Alexandria, Arlington, and D.C. to make selling their home and moving less stressful and more successful. More information is available at 703-971-7237 or ccatkw at gmail.com. Good afternoon and welcome to Aging Matters on Arlington Independent Media's community radio station, WERALP Arlington 96.7 FM. I'm Cheryl Beversdorf, your host. Melanoma, the most serious type of skin cancer, develops in the cells that produce melanin, the pigment that gives skin its color. While less common than other types of skin cancer, Melanoma is more dangerous because of its ability to spread to other organs more rapidly if not treated at an early stage. Today, I have two guests. Dr. Michael Atkins is Deputy Director of the Georgetown Lombardi Comprehensive Cancer Center at Georgetown University and also a staff physician in hematologic oncology at MedStar Georgetown University. My second guest is Amy Aronson, a patient of Dr. Atkins, also a melanoma survivor, and the executive director of the Bernstein Family Foundation. Dr. Atkins will talk about types of melanoma, causes and risk factors, and detection. He will also describe effective options for treating melanoma. Amy will share her story about being diagnosed with melanoma and how, with Dr. Atkins' care, she has survived and thrived during her journey with cancer. So welcome, Dr. Atkins and Amy, and thanks for joining me today. It's a pleasure to be here, Cheryl. It's wonderful. I feel honored. All right. Well, Dr. Atkins, I think we need a, an overview about melanoma. So we're going to start with you and ask you initially to tell us what is melanoma and where does it occur in the body? Sure. As you um, said in your introduction, Cheryl, uh, Melanoma is a cancer of melanocytes, which are the pigment-producing cells, which are throughout the body, but particularly underneath the surface of the skin. And so melanoma, about 90% of melanomas occur on the skin. And so does it occur in other parts of the body um, eventually, or right now we're just talking about the skin? I just want to make sure I understand. Melanoma starts in the skin in 90% of patients, but there are other types of melanoma, such as mucosal melanomas, which form on mucous membranes, such as in the mouth or in the sinuses or in the anus, um, and, or ocular melanomas, which form at the back of the eye. But the primary place where melanoma occurs is on the skin. And I think it's really important. I know that when we talked before, Dr. Atkins, you really wanted to stress the the fact that there is, is there a difference then between skin cancer and melanoma? Do people need to understand that? 
Yes, melanoma um, is different than the typical skin cancers, which are much more common, basal cell and squamous cell cancers, because those other cancers are primarily diseases that are restricted to the skin and therefore can be treated with local measures such as surgical resection or sometimes cryoablation. While melanoma, perhaps unique among cancers, can spread to distant parts of the body, what we call metastasizing, even when the tumor is just a few millimeters thick. And so melanoma can cause life-threatening consequences, uh, even when it's only a few millimeters thick on the skin, it can already have spread to distant parts of the body. Okay, well, let's talk about what the risk factors. Uh, Are there certain skin types that are more prone to developing melanoma? And kind of elaborate on this, Dr. Atkins, about skin types, other factors that can contribute to the risk. Uh, Help start out that way, and then we'll move on to some other possibilities. Sure. So things that are associated with an increased risk of melanoma are skin type, those with fair skin that are freckled, skin that burns rather than tans, people with red or blonde hair, or blue eyes um, are all people who have a higher risk of getting sunburns and a higher risk of developing melanoma. Other factors associated with an increased risk of melanoma are having a large number of moles, and in some cases, having a family history or hereditary uh, type of um, mole disposition that predisposes one to developing melanoma. And as far as other factors associated with melanoma, sunburns, particularly those at an early age, uh, increase the risk of melanoma. People who have frequent intermittent uh, exposure uh, is also uh, to the sun and sunburns also associated with an increased risk of melanoma, and particularly uh, individuals who've moved from fair-skinned individuals who've moved from, let's say, northern latitudes to sun-drenched areas, like when people move from England to Australia, um, associated with an increased risk of melanoma, where in Australia, they probably have the highest risk of Uh, melanoma anywhere in the world because of the fair-skinned population in that sun-drenched country. They have a risk of about 72 per 100,000 per year, which is uh, probably three times higher than what we see in the United States. And how about uh, the difference amongst races, uh, African-Americans or Asians or uh, some other kinds of population? Is there a variation in terms of uh, the possible occurrence amongst these different uh, races? Yeah, Melanoma is most commonly seen in Caucasians. It's about five times more likely in Caucasians than in Hispanics about 30 times more likely than in black-skinned individuals. 
Okay, and how about age? Does age, uh, is there a higher incidence of melanoma in older adults? Since this is aging matters, we definitely want to know that. Well, most cancers actually increase with age, and melanoma is no exception to that. Although it is a cancer that occur, can occur at any age, and um, it's probably one of the most frequent cancers in individuals age 25 to 40. But um, I'd say that the average age for patients developing melanoma is somewhere in the 50s. And to that point then, since we're talking about uh, occurrence, how does that compare, say, to the mortality rate? Uh, since you said cancer is more likely to be in older adults um, without treatment, of course. I'm just sort of kind of, again, laying the groundwork here. Is, is, is the mortality sure. rate associated with melanoma higher uh, compared to other age groups? Well, there's a really interesting story happening with uh, melanoma mortality. Um, the incidence of melanoma has been increased steadily from the 1970s till about 200, 2010. Um, and then it started to decline somewhat in individuals under 30, probably because of changes in sun-seeking behavior. Um, and, but it still continued to increase in people over 50. And the mortality rate for um, people under the age of 50 um, is actually going down for melanoma while it's continuing to increase, particularly in men over 50. And one thing that's particularly interesting is in the last five to 10 years or so, we've seen an overall decrease in the mortality from melanoma of about 15 to 20%, which is probably due to uh, primary prevention with some um, decrease in the rate in which melanoma incidence was growing, secondary prevention, which is more melanoma awareness and earlier detection, but also a large part from, from better therapies for patients with high risk and metastatic melanoma. And we're going to be talking about that shortly. I had one more question in terms of where melanoma is occurs, in this case, males versus females. What would you tell us? It's maybe slightly, melanoma slightly more common in males than females, but it's pretty much um, similar across the genders. But the locations are different. Women more frequently have melanomas occur on their legs and arms, while men more commonly have melanomas on the head and neck and trunk. These are areas where uh, people are more likely to have intermittent sun exposure. All right. Well, we'd like to know more about detection. Uh, explain to us, is, is melanoma easy to detect? Uh, what kind of symptoms would you tell our listeners to be looking for? Or, you know, more importantly, or as importantly, can a person have melanoma and not know it? What, what do we need to know, Dr. Atkins? Sure. There's a saying about melanoma, at least cutaneous melanoma, 
that it writes its message in the skin with its own ink and for all to see. Therefore, it should be easy to detect by the patient or the primary care physician if they know what to look for and actually examine the skin. So what should you look for? Well, there are the A, B, C, D, E's of melanoma, which stand for asymmetry, um, a irregular border, a variegation in color, a diameter of a mole that's uh, larger than six millimeters, which is about the size of the head of an eraser on a pencil, and most particularly a skin lesion that evolves over time. And so if anyone has a mole that is behaving in that way, they should mention it to their primary care physician and or see their dermatologist. But not all melanomas respect the ABCDs. For example, nodular melanoma does not follow these rules, except it does change over time. And I remember you mentioned a little bit earlier that, uh, I guess maybe this has something to do with if it begins to spread, but is it possible that a person may have a melanoma and not, not know it? Uh, I think this is really important to know, uh, that we should hear from you. What, what would you tell us? Um, well, uh, sometimes melanomas form in areas that are not easy to see. Uh, even on the skin, such as on your back or um, back of your legs. And therefore, we recommend that if you have fair skin or a lot of moles and you're not regularly seeing a dermatologist, um, you should ask someone to check your back to see whether or not there's anything that's changing on your skin of your back. And while you take um, uh, control over examining the skin that you can see, either in a mirror or um, just looking at it to see whether there are anything that's changing that um, might potentially be uh, a skin cancer. And this, this ABCDE examination that you mentioned and you described it for us, if I understand correctly, you explained that not everyone has all of the characteristics. Is, can it be some of them, uh, uh, an A and a C perhaps? Or uh, what, what would, should people know in terms of when they're looking? Do, do, do they vary amongst persons or males and females or racially different folks? What, what, do, what do people need to know um, to look for given this ABCDE examination that you're talking about? So those are just what a typical melanoma might look like, but there are many melanomas that don't follow those characteristics. The most important letter in the ABCDEs is E, a skin lesion that changes over time. And sometimes it's hard to sort that out because you're looking at your skin uh, all the time, it, you might not notice that something is changing over a few months or even uh, more slowly than that. But um, if something you notice something that's there that wasn't there before 
and it doesn't go away, then you should be asking um, family member, is this something that's new? Asking your doctor, is this something to worry about? And um, seeing a dermatologist if uh, it continues to bother you. Sometimes uh, they can, uh, melanomas can also have symptoms. They can itch or they can be, have some redness around the side. And sometimes they can, when they get more advanced, they can ulcerate, which means the top layer of the skin um, is broken through by the tumor and can bleed. And so all of these are really worrisome findings in a mole. And that's a good segue into your recommendations as to who should have a skin cancer screening. It sounds like it should be younger people as well as older adults. So give us some advice and guidelines about getting a skin cancer screening and how often one should get this kind of screening. Well, I think there are a number of um, things that should be done. I think there's, you sh it's good for people to learn how to do a self-skin exam, as I was describing before, and also enlist the aid of a partner to um, examine the skin that they themselves can't see. It's also important when you're seeing your primary care physician that you get undressed to your underwear and make sure the primary care physician looks at your skin or you point out some moles that you're worried about. And anybody who has um, fair skin, freckles, blue eyes, blonde hair, the type of skin um, that is associated with burns and associated with an increased risk of melanoma or with many moles or with a family history of melanoma should have a dermatologist. And I tell my patients who um, have melanoma and have children that they should have their children see a dermatologist starting at age 16 or so when most of their uh, congenital moles have formed and let the dermatologists give a recommendation about how frequently they should come back and be seen based on their pattern of their skin and their, um, and their moles. So, gosh, as, as, as early as 16 is, is an age when you really should uh, begin to be thinking about, and, and especially if you have these other risk factors. Um, I, I also would like to hear again, in terms of kind of the prognosis the, the screening is so important, and you've described it already, but it, it, it's important to catch this, this melanoma and find it early. And, and can you kind of tell why again, not kind of, but tell us again why it's so important to, to catch this melanoma early? Sure. So melanomas can... Um usually stay at the surface at the beginning, which we call melanoma in situ or non-invasive. But at some point they begin to invade the um, lower levels of the skin. And when they do that, the further down they go, the higher the risk of metastasis. A melanoma that's less than one millimeter thick or invasion um, 
has a, about a 90 to 95% chance of being cured with just resection alone, while a melanoma that's four millimeters or more in thickness, what we call a thick melanoma, may have as high a risk as 50% of spreading to distant, to regional lymph nodes and distant areas. And so catching the melanoma when it's before it invades or when it's only invaded a small amount greatly improves your chance of having it cured with a surgical resection alone. So Dr. Atkins, explain how then, if you're having these symptoms, how is the diagnosis made? And is it possible that there could be a misdiagnosis, that it's a misinterpretation depending on who's seeing it? If it could, as you've mentioned earlier, a, a primary care physician, a dermatologist, in your experience, has there been a misdiagnosis? What's that process? So the diagnosis of melanoma is still made by a biopsy, which is a resection of the lesion, or usually it's an excisional biopsy where the whole lesion is excised, all the way trying to get underneath the whole lesion, which usually is something that's associated with some sutures at the end. Um, and then a review by a pathologist to see the nature of the lesion that's been removed. Um, sometimes it's difficult for the pathologist to interpret um, whether it's a malignant tumor or not because the tumor resembles in its character a benign mole or because um, the cancer cells make up only a small portion of the tumor, or the tumor has largely spontaneously regressed under the influence of the immune system. And what you're seeing is just the remnants of the original melanoma. But it doesn't mean just because the melanoma has, the primary melanoma has regressed under the influence of the immune system that it wasn't thicker at some other time and had a chance to spread to distant areas. And as we'll talk about, that was an issue that happened with Amy's melanoma. Okay, and and I'm just curious, does does that happen often? I mean, what what's your experience in terms of misdiagnosis? Um, I would say as we run a multidisciplinary melanoma conference where we review every melanoma um, patient's history and pathology that we see in a multidisciplinary setting with the surgeon, the medical oncologist, dermatologist, and a pathologist uh, going over the pathology that about one-third of the time we change the treatment plan in some way because of that review and probably at least uh, uh, a third of the time when we're changing something, it's because our pathologist is reading the pathology different than the outside pathologist. Sometimes it's read as a melanoma on the outside, and we think it's a benign lesion. Sometimes um, it's read as being a thin melanoma, and we think it was a thick melanoma. But what we worry about are the patient's 
who've had a melanoma resected on the outside and had it read as a benign lesion by an outside dermatopathologist and never know, um, never get to a, a melanoma center to have that pathology uh, read by a group of experts to determine whether it was truly a melanoma rather than something benign. Well, we're going to be talking more about finding Amy's uh, melanoma and hearing her story after the break. But we're going to take a short break right now for an important message. In case you tuned in late, we are talking with Dr. Michael Atkins, Deputy Director of the Georgetown Lombardi Comprehensive Cancer Center at Georgetown University. He's also a staff physician in hematologic oncology at MedStar Georgetown University Hospital. And we're also going to be talking with Amy Aronson, who is a patient of Dr. Atkins, a melanoma survivor, and she's the executive director of the Bernstein Family Foundation. And you are listening to WERALP Arlington, 96.7 FM. We'll be right back. Aging Matters on WERA is brought to you in part by Synergy Home Care. Synergy Home Care provides premier in-home care for you or your loved one throughout Northern Virginia, including personal care, homemaker services, companion and memory care, and transportation. Call 703-558-3435 or visit SynergyHomeCare.com for more information. Synergy Home Care will find a care solution to meet your needs. Welcome back. Our topic today is about melanoma, and our two guests are Dr. Michael Atkins, Deputy Director of the Georgetown Lombardi Comprehensive Cancer Center at Georgetown University, and Amy Aronson, who is a patient of Dr. Atkins and also a melanoma survivor. And so, Dr. Atkins, you gave an excellent overview of everything that we need to know about melanoma. I wanted to ask one last question, which might be a good segue into Amy's story, and that is the different stages of melanoma. Explain to us what that is and how that relates to Amy's story. Sure. We generally talk about um, four stages of melanoma, with um, stage one being relatively thin melanomas that are confined to the skin. Stage two melanomas are somewhat thicker melanomas, but still confined to the skin. Stage three melanomas being melanomas where there's evidence that they have spread to the lymph nodes that drain that patch of skin, what we call the regional lymph nodes. And that can be either microscopic involvement that can be picked up through a procedure called a sentinel lymph node biopsy, where some radioactive tracer or blue dye is injected at the primary site of the melanoma and travels along the skin lymphatics to the draining lymph node. And the surgeon, when they're resecting the primary melanoma or doing a wider excision around the primary melanoma, will also then sample the radioactive or blue lymph node to see if any melanoma cells have gotten into that draining lymph node. And that would be the earliest way of detecting stage 3 melanoma. And that would be stage 3A all the way up to melanoma that you could 
feel underneath or feel at the lymph nodes that had grown to a size that it is palpable, um, which would be 3B or 3C melanoma. And I'm going to come back to that in a second um, because it relates to Amy's case. And then finally, stage four melanoma is a melanoma that is spread through the bloodstream to distant parts of the body, places like the lungs or distant lymph nodes, distant areas of uh, underneath the skin, what we call subcutaneous metastases, liver, spleen, adrenal glands, practically anywhere in the body, melanoma can spread, including the brain. And that's a type of melanoma that requires some sort of systemic therapy. But in Amy's case, and as she'll talk about, she had a primary skin lesion um, presented that was diagnosed as a melanoma in situ, non-invasive. And years later, came back with something that she could feel in a lymph node. And I'll turn it over to you, Amy. Okay. So, Amy, how did you discover you had melanoma? What were your symptoms? Do you have some of the risk factors that... Uh, Dr. Atkins was talking about. Tell us, give us an introduction, an overview of your of what happened. Yeah, so he's absolutely correct. I was diagnosed with melanoma in situ about seven years ago, and it was a freckle. It looked like um, exactly how he described a um, a dark freckle on my heart center, right in my chest. Um, it seemed like not an unusual freckle, but very dark and, and absolutely they removed it. It was excised. I um, had continued to get routine care to monitor it, but felt very confident that I wasn't put in a position to be alarmed or concerned that it, I felt like I had done everything right to get routine screening and healthcare. And um, however, seven years later, um, right when COVID hit, uh, my dog who sleeps with me and he's this giant Great Dane puppy, he was so intent on keeping his head inside my armpit. And when I tried to push his head away, he he wouldn't. And eventually I felt something rather large. It felt almost like a rock um, deep inside my left armpit. And I knew something was not correct. Um, and at that point, I really was concerned. And I called my gynecologist thinking, you know, perhaps this is related to a breast cancer. I had no idea. Um, and I absolutely uh, was able to get a diagnostic um, test. I did a biopsy um, and it happened rather quickly, um, especially during COVID. It was unnerving, but um, I was told two days after a biopsy that I had stage three melanoma. And so it's interesting, you said you initially contacted your gynecologist. What, what happened then? Uh, what, how did the gynecologist then get you to see Dr. Atkins? Or was there another uh, healthcare provider that you saw? Or what, what was that process? Explain kind of what happened for you. Yes, I think that I have a very good relationship with my gynecologist. Um, you know, we've been together 20 years. Um, I've had routine uh, you know, mammograms and being that it was in my armpit, I just assumed it was more related to my breast tissue. Um, I had been taught to do breast self-exams and, and if something was not right, I felt like she was somebody I could trust. Um, she recommended that I just, you know, monitor it. And I just knew 
immediately that something wasn't right. It was it was not something I wanted to accept as, you know, hormonal or that it was going to go anywhere. And pretty much the following week, I was able to get into um, Sibley Hospital. And just through a, a personal friend that was able to schedule this biopsy, I did. Um, and it really was alarming to be told that you have stage three melanoma. And it was immediately then that I did the research with my my family and friends to figure out well, what is the best care locally that I feel safe and I feel comfortable. And that's how I found Dr. Atkins at Georgetown. Okay. And I wanted to just step one, uh, one step back. Cause I was just curious in, you know, Dr. Atkins in the first part of the program talked about risk factors. Were there risk factors in your family? We can't see you. So we don't know. Did you have the kind of skin hair color that Dr. Atkins was talking about? Um, what could you tell us in terms of of awareness about this insofar as risk factors? Absolutely. So I am native of California. I, I mean, I am fair-skinned. Yes, I'm fair-skinned, but I didn't think that um, that was an indicator. I did have a lot of sun exposure throughout my whole life. I'm an avid runner. Um, I have used sunblock, but I wasn't absolutely religious about it. And I think it's an accumulation of, um, you know, it's not just physical. I think it's it's absolutely something that I felt. Um, there's no one in my family. There's absolutely no history of melanoma or cancer in my family. And that's really good, good information to have because just because there are certain risk factors, in your case, there wasn't any family history, but you had some of the factors, but not all. So um, this is really important. So now you said that you uh, saw Dr. Atkins. And Dr. Atkins, do you want to uh, explain kind of what next steps in terms of the factors that determined what the best treatment would be for for um, for Amy's melanoma? What happened next? Sure. Um, so Amy had uh, what we call staging to see whether the cancer had spread to other parts of her body. And after a careful review of the CT scans and PET scan that she had, we were pretty confident that there wasn't uh, radiographic evidence of disease that had spread to distant areas. But nonetheless, she had a pretty big mass underneath her arm that had a very high risk of spreading to distant areas. And this was early in the pandemic. And it was at a time when we weren't doing elective surgeries at our hospital. We were saving all of our uh, PPE for our physicians working in the intensive care unit, taking care of COVID patients. And um, so we discussed um, alternatives to surgery for managing her cancer. And there was a lot of really exciting data that was coming out about using some of the treatments for that we had become comfortable with for patients with stage four melanoma that had spread to distant parts of the body and where we were seeing a lot of success using those same treatments in patients as an alternative to initial surgery in patients with stage three disease that we could feel. And so 
we talked to Amy about this option of treating with systemic immune therapy first and then doing surgery at a later date and what the advantages and risks were of taking that approach. And I'll pause here. Maybe Amy, you want to uh, comment on on what you heard from from me in that discussion and how that might have differed to what you were planning to do or what you heard from other people. Yes. I mean, I'm a big fan of getting multiple opinions. I mean, I think this is a big deal. And I think we are alive at such an unusual time with great medical advances. But I did see um, different opportunities to um, either get immunotherapy first or surgery after or surgery first and then immunotherapy. It was very confusing. And I have to tell you that um, Dr. Atkins um, was is so entrepreneurial. I felt like he is on the cutting edge of science. And after doing my due diligence, felt so comfortable that why wouldn't I take advantage of the medical advances today to see how my body would react to the immunotherapy and knowing that this particular um, protocol and course of treatment could help better understand how does my body react and then do the surgery. And it gave me so much confidence and relief. It's, it's quite scary to be told you're given cancer and um, how do you deal with it? And knowing that there's so many different options, but I just felt very confident that if I could be patient, um, get exposed to the immunotherapy in multiple sessions, um, see how my body reacts, then go to surgery, continue with the protocol and the treatment, um, it just seemed like the best path forward. And to that point then, did you actually talk with other health providers? Did you talk with other people? What was the, say, the timeline insofar as getting this advice from Dr. Atkins and actually begin to move forward to the, the therapies that he suggested yes. for the whole treatment plan? I really gave myself two weeks to do the research because I felt that there was so much change in the world. This is, remember, COVID had just hit when I was told that I had stage three cancer. So um, I really didn't want to wait. There was this feeling, oh, I should hurry up and have surgery. But the minute I met Dr. Atkins, there was something about Dr. Atkins in combination with Dr. Al-Rafai, the surgeon, that just put me at ease. I just felt so safe. And I felt that this was the best plan for me, that irrespective of other doctors that I had interviewed and surgeons I had interviewed, it was just a really good fit. Um, there was a great confidence that I had in this team, and I just felt like I could put my trust and faith in Dr. Atkins. And I wanted to add a couple of things to, 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 the, um, to the story. So the information that was coming out, and we knew because we were... Um, um, involved in this type of uh, research activities. Um, there, we knew information was coming out in a couple of months that um, backed up information that had been previously presented that people who were treated with two immunotherapy drugs up front um, before surgery had about a 60% chance of when those lymph nodes were examined at surgery having no cancer in those lymph nodes. And if you had no cancer in those lymph nodes, the data was looking like close to 90 plus percent, if not 100 percent of those patients with no tumor 
in their lymph nodes when examined under the microscope looked like they were going to be relapse-free at least two years out. And we knew from our other experience that people who were relapse-free in that type of setting two years out had a very good chance of remaining relapse-free. And so that was the data we were looking at that gave us uh, more um, confidence that we could give immunotherapy first and wait on the surgery. But the other piece of information was in our multidisciplinary conference where we review all of our the pathology of our melanoma patients, we looked at the primary melanoma that Amy had removed seven years ago and was read as a melanoma in situ, and we read it differently. We read it as an invasive melanoma that had largely regressed. So we understood at that moment that her immune system was able to recognize her tumor and had already started to eliminate it from the skin and that we knew that something was preventing the immune system from eliminating it from the lymph node. And there was a good chance that what it was blocking the immune system was from working was something called an immune checkpoint. And the immunotherapies that we give block those checkpoints to allow the immune system to be unleashed and attack the tumor. So we thought there would be a very good chance that Amy getting these therapies up front would be in that 60% of people who had a pathologic or a near pathologic complete or pathologic complete or near complete response. And one thing that I'm wondering from both, I can either ask you, Amy, or, and, and both of you for that matter, what about side effects? You hear about side effects and other kinds of therapies what kind of side effects do patients deal with with the immunotherapy? Well, I can speak with firsthand that knowing that there's a lot of stress involved and um, I did not have any radical side effects. I did have some slight skin reveals. Um, I did have, um, I remember Dr. Atkins, my tongue had been more like a geography tongue. There were, there were different patterns on my tongue, but I really was lucky that the worst thing that I remember was just being actually fatigued, but I still had energy to take care of myself with walking. And it was a, it was a very quiet time. It was a reflective time. So I, I did not feel like there was anything um, rather um, invasive that would have prevented me from doing this treatment. So um, yeah, these immune therapies, uh, are very powerful, and they can unleash the immune system not just against the cancer, but against normal tissues. And so we can see with these therapies, immune-related adverse events from the immune system tech attacking normal tissues, such as the thyroid gland leading to thyroiditis or the liver leading to hepatitis or the colon leading to colitis or the skin leading to dermatitis. And these happen in patients with stage four disease where we give more of these um, potent therapies in as much as 40 to 50% of patients. But they can be controlled by holding the therapy or giving immunosuppressive drugs. And our hope is that the immune system recognizes the tumor as being more foreign than self and so 
when the immune system starts attacking normal tissue, it's either already attacked the tumor and gotten rid of it, or it was never going to do that because for some reason it didn't recognize it. And when we were giving these therapies in the stage three setting, we give far less, just two treatments and a lower dose. And so most patients, when they're treated this way in what we call the neoadjuvant setting, don't get enough immune activation that they're going to have these toxicities to normal tissues. Most of the focus is, of the immune system is just on the tumor. And only about 10% of patients have the type of toxicities that I mentioned. And so the overall uh, length of time for this therapy is, I thought I heard you just say, two treatments? Uh, so in, in what span of time are we talking about, Dr. Atkins? It was two treatments three weeks apart, and then we waited another three to four weeks, and then Amy had her surgery, which involved removing all the lymph nodes underneath her left armpit, and then she had about four weeks or so of recovery, and we then had a discussion about whether we should give more therapy in the adjuvant setting or whether we should stop. And the data on whether it was okay to stop after two treatments um, in people who have a pathologic complete response or near complete response, it was still somewhat immature. So we thought we would be safe when we had the cancer on the run uh, to just give three more treatments of a, a more attenuated type of therapy with just one of the two agents that was uh, the uh, better tolerated of the two agents. So the whole therapy took about six months. And Amy, talk to us about what that experience was like. What, what were the physical effects of, of having this cancer and the treatments? And how did you deal with the emotional and social effects? Help us understand what you dealt with in, during this critical time. That is a loaded question because it also happened during COVID. Yes. So I had four kids living under my roof and, um, you know, I just was able to give myself permission to surrender to the excellent care I was being given and really trust at the end of the day, that's why it's such a big decision to make a decision. Who do you work with? Um, you're going to be spending, you know, hopefully a lifetime with these physicians um, but in terms of my personal care, I never felt sick. Um, I think cancer, you know, this image that you should be really kind of uh, just not feeling great and feeling terrible, but I actually felt well. I felt well enough to walk and to continue to exercise. Um, I think I had never slept as much as I had. I just really kind of allowed myself to slow down, which is not my normal speed for anybody who knows me. Um, I was surrounded by incredible family and friends and community. I honestly had never felt more loved in my entire life. I think that really matters. It isn't just a physical disease. It's emotional and mental and spiritual. Um, I had my rabbi calling. I had um, different community leaders call. But I think at the end of the day, we have to keep living. And that was something that drove me um, to make sure I took care of my health. I actually really changed my diet. Um, I really, you know, scaled back on, you know, alcohol, 
Um, a lot of the dairy products, I really focused on plant-based. It was important to me that I was an active patient and an active participant in the healing and recovery. I think we cannot solely rely on Western medicine to heal us or fix us. Doctors aren't gods, even though we want them to be. But I think as a patient, we have a certain responsibility to make sure that we are aiding our healing and healing can be on, on many levels. So for me, it was a, a very, um, you know, a, a big idea. And I wouldn't wish this upon anybody, but to know that we are alive at a time when there is great care, there's great medical advances, um, and to be really caring and loving with yourself was one of the lessons I learned the most. So um, it's a process and it will continue to be a process. There's no simple solutions and no quick fixes. And to that point, I was also curious, uh, you could, uh, you have to, I would assume, but I'm asking you, how, how do you cope with the possibility of cancer recurrence? Is that on your mind very often? Or do you feel that you've changed your lifestyle and that your treatments have been effective? What, what's your mindset at this point, Amy? Well, number one, I'm really blessed to have Dr. Atkins um, as my oncologist. I hope to have an ongoing relationship with him. And that's why your decision of who do you trust and where do you get your care and treatment really matters. In terms of me personally, I mean, I'm committed to living my best life in this lifetime. And am I worried? Yes. I've had several friends um, ranging from 26 years old um, to 57 who were not as fortunate, who didn't react um, to whether the immunotherapy or their treatment, or it was, it was a, you know, it, they were not as fortunate as I was. So it's not lost to me that life is fragile. Life is a gift. Um, there's no guarantees in life, but um, you know, I try to just every three months I go back to get a CT scan and I feel that I'm very um, a good partner with Dr. Atkins. And so I think it takes, it does take a village and I, really rely on um, my community to hold me up and hold me accountable to to take the steps I need to be well. And I think I I choose to live. And if God forbid it did come back, I feel like I'm also in good hands with Dr. Atkins that he would help support me and guide me. And hopefully, um, you know, the, the immunotherapy would continue to be effective and I will do everything in my power to, to be the best patient that I can be. And are you, Dr. Atkins, encouraged about the fact that this therapy has been so much more uh, successful. Are you, uh, are you encouraged by the survival rates? Have you seen more of that? And what, what would you tell us about how, uh, how treatment for melanoma is now, say, than many years ago? Sure. Well, that's a great question. So when I um, first uh, finished my oncology training, I too had had a, known a lot of people um, or several people when I was growing up who had gotten melanoma and um, had died from it. And melanoma was considered at that point the disease that gives cancer a bad name because it affected people at any age, including at a young age. And there really was no treatment for metastatic melanoma that was effective. Median life expectancy was six to nine months, and less than 10% of people lived five years. But over the past 10 to 15 years, based on science, we have come up with several very effective treatment approaches for patients with metastatic melanoma. 
uh, immunotherapy, as I was talking about, and what Amy received, and molecularly targeted thera uh, therapies that target a mutation that's common in about uh, occurs in about half of um, melanomas that can be um, targeted with selective drugs that block just that pathway driven by that mutation called the BRAF mutation. And together with those new treatments and experience multidisciplinary care that you can have in a program that uses a team approach to deciding when to use local therapies such as surgery and radiation and when to use systemic approaches such as immunotherapy and uh, targeted therapies. Now the median survival of uh, patients with um, melanoma is unknown. It's over 50% over of patients with metastatic melanoma can probably be cured from their disease. And we've taken those advances in stage four melanoma and we're starting to bring them uh, those treatments into the stage three setting, um, such as Amy was in, and we're finding even better results in that population with these treatments than in the stage four population. And we'll be bringing as appropriate these type of treatments even earlier in the disease. And so our goal um, with a systemic therapy for melanoma is to not just turn uh, this cancer into a chronic disease, but to turn it into a curable disease. And I think we have now the tools to do this for the majority of patients if they get the right treatment plan from the beginning. Well, your story, Amy, with the assistance of and treatment of Dr. Atkins is, is just phenomenal. And I really want to thank both Dr. Michael Atkins, the Deputy Director of the Georgetown Lombardi Comprehensive Cancer Center at MedStar Georgetown University Hospital, and Amy Aronson, a melanoma survivor and Executive Director of the Bernstein Family Foundation for joining me today. If you want to learn more about Aging Matters, you can visit our website, www.agingmattersonline.com. And at this site, you can access all Aging Matters radio and TV show content, as well as the Aging Matters podcasts on Apple and Spotify. And all broad radio broadcasts, including today's, will be on Apple and Spotify, so you can find them there as well. You can also subscribe to Aging Matters monthly email newsletter, and that way you can receive updates about new radio shows and TV episodes. Aging Matters is produced in association with Ink Mouth Media, and you can learn more about that company at inkmouthmedia.com. Thank you for listening to Aging Matters today, and remember, age is just a number, not a label. I'll be back again with you next week. Aging Matters is sponsored in part by the Aging Life Care Association an organization of aging life care professionals. Aging life care professionals offer guidance, advocacy, and support for older adults and their families in order to maximize quality of life. An aging life care professional can be there for your loved one when you can't be. More information about the Aging Life Care Association is available at www.midatlanticalca.org.